All right, so here is the basic outline for today's podcast lecture. To start off with, I am going to do a review of ego psychology, and that review is going to pull from two of the prior podcast lectures that you have listened to. The podcast lecture that came right before this one, which was dedicated to ego psychology, and a podcast lecture that was a little bit further back where I talked about Freud's shift from the topographical model to the structural models of the mind. After I do that review, I'm going to talk about how self-psychology developed in relation to both classical psychoanalysis and ego psychology. And I'm also going to try to do kind of a compare and contrast of self-psychology to ego psychology, show some of the ways that maybe they're kind of similar, but really spend more time focusing on the ways that I think they are different from one another. After that, I want to do a very high altitude overview of what I believe are the main concepts and ideas in self-psychology. And then after I do that, I want to use the concepts of self-psychology, the theory of self-psychology, to challenge something that I think is a myth, a myth that I'm going to bet dollars to donuts you're all familiar with. And then we will end the podcast lecture with uh, a call to action, something that I'm going to want you to do before we meet as a class. All right, let's go ahead and get started. So here is the review section of the podcast. I'm going to try to keep this pretty quick. I'm going to run through this review very, very fast. Uh, so if there's something that you hear in the review and you're like, oh, I, I, I'm not sure that I really knew that, you might want to go back and listen to some of the previous podcast lectures that could help you out. Uh, but if you listen to the review and everything seems like kind of oldnews.com, that means you're probably in pretty good shape. So the first thing we're going to do is go back to the move that Freud made from the topographical model of the mind, that was the model that had the unconscious, pre-conscious, conscious, to the structural model of the mind, where he came up with these these concepts, these agencies, the id, the ego, and the superego. So what I want you to recall in that is that for Freud, the ego was this part of the mind that had a pretty specific job to do. And that job was to kind of make sure that the id didn't wreak havoc in our lives and also kind of see to the very sort of uh, critical demands of the superego, right? So the superego would be very critical of somebody telling them that they're not good enough, they're not ethical enough, they're not attractive enough, so on and so forth. And that's kind of a hard thing to deal with. And the id is saying like, you know, I want to eat cake and, you know, uh, send uh, a nasty email to a person that I don't like or something like that. And so that that's something which is going on. And the ego is kind of balancing those two things. And at the same time, the ego is also kind of monitoring all of the different demands that are coming our way from the world that we live in, right? Like when your alarm goes off in the morning and telling you it's time to wake up and start your day, you know, rather than, you know, freak out and, and like pick up your phone or your alarm clock, if you use an alarm clock, I don't think a lot of people do nowadays, but let's just say some people do pick up your phone or your alarm clock and like whip it across the room. That would be like a very id thing to do. The ego's like, nope, wake up, start your day, make your coffee, you know, look at, look at your emails, see if anything important has happened while the day star was turned off, that, that sort of thing. That's, that's what the ego is doing, which brings me to the second point here. Freud also came up with this idea, which he called the economic model. And that concept goes like this. 
at any given point in our lives, we have a finite amount of what I'm going to call psychological energy within our system. And that energy is being directed into a bunch of different things all the time. It's being directed into, you know, just looking at the world around you and making sure that there's nothing that you like kind of really need to focus on right now. When something does come up that you need to focus on, it takes energy to focus on that thing and do it. So let's just say, for example, you're going through your day, you're kind of on autopilot and then uh, maybe you're making some coffee in the morning or something and you're doing your thing. And then all of a sudden you realize that you don't have any cream and you, you take cream in your coffee. So you, you, you'd go, oh, that's a problem. And now that would pull energy. You'd have to, you know, set a reminder, pick up cream from the store, put it on a list, something like that. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to do that, but there's tons of things like this that we encounter throughout the day. Tons of different things that are taking energy out of the system, little bits here and there. And there's other things that we do that might deposit energy into the system, you know, like uh, relaxing, sleeping, having a really interesting conversation with somebody, all those things put energy in. So there's energy being taken out. There's energy sometimes being put in and provided that there's enough energy in the system, the, the ego will do its job well. However, if there's too many things taking energy out of the system, if there's too many things that we're attempting to manage at any given moment, then that means that the ego starts to kind of do its job a little bit less well. It gets a little bit sloppy. We start making mistakes. We say things we don't mean. We forget to do things that are important, so on and so forth. So that's the economic model that Freud came up with. The next point that I want to talk about, and this is something that I really covered a lot in the previous podcast lecture, is that psychoanalysis was something that Freud created in Europe during primarily the Victorian era, which was a time that was incredibly rigid and very oppressive. He witnessed all sorts of different kinds of violence, racism, sexism being directed at people who were different from what was considered to be normal in that time and place. And he also witnessed a whole bunch of other kinds of tragedies throughout his life. And that gave him and the psychoanalysis that he created a kind of tragic or pessimistic uh, streak, we might say, right? Those are two things that are very present in Freud's version of psychoanalysis because it was created at a specific time and place. And, uh, you know, you might agree or disagree with this, but the idea is that anybody who was existing at the same time and place that Freud was would have probably created a tragic and pessimistic theory of the, the human mind as well. And like I said, you might agree with that, you might disagree with that, but that's the stuff that I covered in the previous podcast lecture. So here's the last point of the review. Ego psychology is a, a theory and a, a set of practices or techniques that was developed as an offshoot of Freudian psychoanalysis. So it uses Freudian psychoanalysis as its foundation, as its base. But then it kind of creates this new stuff. It adds on to it. It creates, it's like a new branch coming off of the main trunk of the tree. And ego psychology, unlike Freudian psychoanalysis, which was created in Europe at a time that was filled with all sorts of, you know, violence and, and other very problematic things, ego psychology was created in the United States. The United States had a culture which is very, very, very tied into capitalism. And that culture, the culture in the United States that is tied into capitalism, valued, and I would say continues to value, people being healthy and well-balanced so that they can be productive. 
that's the idea here, right? It, it is the person's individual responsibility to see to their physical health, their mental health, their emotional health. It is the person's individual responsibility to save enough money so that they can do the things they want to do. It's the person's individual responsibility to uh, take care of the just all the stuff that needs being taken care of, right? That's the way it works here. And the the idea is that if people are good at that, then they they can be very productive. Americans love that term, productive. Uh, there's many times in my life where I've asked somebody, hey, how are you doing? How was your day? Something like that. And they're like, oh, it was really good. I've been really productive. That's something that I hear a lot. And that's one of the reasons that I think that this kind of value system is still very much in place here in the United States. The other thing that was very present in the United States when ego psychology was developed was a valuing of having a positive attitude. The, uh, the valuing of not feeling sorry for oneself. The idea was what, what people should do if they want to be healthy and well-balanced and productive is they should have a good attitude. If people have a good attitude, that means good things happen to them. If they don't have a good attitude, bad things happen to them. In addition to that, I mean, this can turn into a, I, I think anyways, it can turn into a bit of victim blaming. If bad things are happening to you, it's because you have a bad attitude. It's not because, you know, society hasn't made it easy for you to do some of the things you need to do. It's because you don't have a good attitude. That's the idea here. So that's that's ego psychology and a little bit about the time and place where it was created. And that is going to conclude our review. So what I'm going to do now is play a little bit of transition music. And when we come back, I will get into situating self-psychology as a theory as it relates to both classical Freudian psychoanalysis and ego psychology. So today, what we're going to be doing is moving on from ego psychology, and we're going to be taking a look at another psychoanalytic theory, another set of concepts and ideas that, like ego psychology, was developed here in the United States, and this theory is called self-psychology. So self-psychology was developed by a gentleman named Heinz Kohut. That's spelled K-O-H-U-T. And Kohut is somebody who has some similarities to the ego psychologists. So the quick, again, bit of a review here. Ego psychologists were psychoanalysts who were living, working, thinking in Europe. And they ended up leaving Europe and coming to the United States. Most of them settled in New York when they got here and they continued to live and think and do their moving and shaking in New York. Kohut is also somebody who is a European. He actually grows up in Vienna, Austria, the same city that Freud, you know, grew up in and, and created psychoanalysis in. But he's a lot younger than Freud. And he's a lot younger, actually, than many of the people who become ego psychologists as well. And so Kohut, he, he, when the Nazis are coming to power, he sees the writing on the wall and he's like, this is not a good place to be. And him and his family, they leave Vienna and they come to the United States, but they don't settle in New York. What they end up doing is they end up continuing to move westward and they end up settling in the city of Chicago. And that's where he does a whole bunch of his thinking and working is in Chicago, not New York. Now, as I mentioned, Kohut would be part 
of the generation of psychoanalysts who was taught classical psychoanalysis and who was taught ego psychology. He was incredibly conversant in both of those styles of thinking and working with people. He knew them. But after he learned them, and I would go so far as to say because he learned them and learned them very, very well, he was able to kind of take a critical point of view to both of them. And when he took a critical point of view to both classical psychoanalysis and ego psychology, he noticed that there were some things that he thought were deficiencies in both of those systems of thought. He thought that they did some things really well, absolutely. But he also noticed that they didn't do some very important things as well as he would like them to do. And that dissatisfaction that he felt with classical psychoanalysis, the dissatisfaction that he felt with ego psychology led him to say, I'm going to develop something which is going to be a, a new way of working with people, a different way of working with people that is based on classical psychoanalysis, based on those foundational concepts that Freud articulated, and to a degree also based on ego psychology. But it's also it's going to be yet again a new branch, kind of branching off and going off in a new direction away from both of those things. So if you think of a tree, the trunk of the tree, that's classical Freudian psychoanalysis. That's those foundational concepts that we talked about in unit one of this class. Now what I want you to do is imagine a branch coming off of that main trunk. Call that branch ego psychology. And then what I want you to do is really very early on in that new branch, I want you to imagine a second branch branching off of that first branch that branches off of the trunk. And that that second branch, that's going to be self-psychology. So let's talk about a little bit about what makes this new branch different than what came before. So in both classical Freudian psychoanalysis and in ego psychology, one of the things that was kind of normal is that the analyst, the psychoanalyst who would treat patients would sit somewhere where their patient couldn't see them. Their patient, The patient would lie down on a couch and the patient was supposed to free associate. They were supposed to just say whatever it was that came into their mind without censoring themselves. They're supposed to be as honest as they could. The analyst would listen to them very closely with something that Freud called evenly suspended attention. Uh, another way of describing that would be listen to them in a non-judgmental way. And the analyst wouldn't say very much. There'd be times where the patient would be talking, 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 and then the patient would stop talking. And rather than offer some kind of reassurance or, or whatever, the analyst would just be quiet. That was what they would do. Now, the classical psychoanalysts and the ego psychologists, if you ask them, why would you do that? Why would you just be quiet when somebody, you know, was not talking? And they would say that they wanted to give the patient time to think, that silence was not a bad thing, that silence was kind of like space. And sometimes people needed space in order to gather their thoughts and and just kind of keep on going. And they didn't want to interrupt the patient's thought process, right? That was the idea here. And so they would they would wait. And then the patient would eventually start talking again. Now, there were, there were obviously times where the patient would stop talking and they would get uncomfortable. And additionally, classical psychoanalysts and ego psychologists, they didn't really try to get rid of the discomfort. They let the patient feel uncomfortable. They might, from time to time, comment on it. They might say something really basic like, you've stopped talking 
but that that would be the only sort of thing they might they might offer an interpretation i guess too i don't want to make them sound like they're too cold or too aloof because that would be inaccurate and unfair but what i am trying to to make clear is that both classical psychoanalysts and ego psychologists they weren't super talkative people and uh, they they tried to take themselves sort of like out of the equation maybe you've heard of this thing called the blank screen uh, there's this idea that the the therapist or the analyst should be a blank screen that the patient just projects on. There was an idea that the psychoanalyst shouldn't bring their personality, shouldn't bring their self, shouldn't talk about themselves, should should be uh, very kind of impersonal. That was the idea in those two things. And Kohut experienced these things, and he actually practiced that way himself for a very, very, very long time. He practiced what would be called a classical style of psychoanalysis. He taught other people to practice that same style. But when he was working with patients, what he noticed is that not all patients responded in a really good way to that style. Now, there are patients who did respond in a positive way. Kohut's very clear on this. If you read his writing, he does not think that classical psychoanalysis or that ego psychology are bad ways of working with people. He says that many times in many different ways. He does not think they're bad. What he does come to think, though, is that there are some patients that those styles just are not going to work for. They, they are the kind of patient who has experienced perhaps a lot of deprivation, a lot of people not treating them well, maybe a lot of what we might call today neglect. Kohut said when you encounter that kind of a patient, treating them in this style of classical psychoanalysis or ego psychology, not only does it not help them, it might in fact be kind of harmful to them is one of the things that he comes to believe. Another thing though that I, I want to make as clear as I possibly can about this is that Kohut doesn't just like, you know, read one article on ego psychology or like read one book on classical psychoanalysis. He spends years and years and years of his life studying those two things closely and practicing both of those styles of working with people a lot. He is somebody who understands them. He's, he's, he's done the work to understand them. He's tried to use them. He's used them and seen them work. He's used them and seen them fail to work. And because of that, because he actually engages with the theory first, then he's actually able to go like, hey, I have some criticisms. I have some concerns that I want to voice about these ways of working with people. And that's kind of what gets him going. I want to highlight that because I find that that's so different than the way that so many people are today. And I, 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 I say this based off of my own work as a supervisor sometimes with people. I'll, I'll have somebody who comes to me for supervision and they'll tell me that there's something that they just don't like very much. Uh, they might not like psychoanalysis. They might not like self-psychology. They might not like CBT or DBT. Who knows, right? There's something they don't like. And whenever I encounter that, I try to ask the, the person, well, Tell me about why you don't like it. What is your level of experience with this thing that you don't like? And what I discover very frequently is that people don't have much experience with it. They have a little tiny, 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 tiny bit of experience with it. And based on that tiny, tiny, tiny bit of experience, they've decided this thing is rubbish and they don't like it. And that I think is kind of sloppy and even a little bit lazy. And so um, when I talk about Kohut, I want to make it clear that he wasn't doing that, right? He, he took the time to really understand the thing that he later on kind of criticized. And I want to encourage all of you who are listening to my voice right now to, to be more like Kohut, right? Like if you're going to be critical of things, that's fine. 
being critical of things is good. But to be critical of something and then to create your own thing that that kind of addresses whatever your criticisms are, you have to know the thing that you're criticizing. You have to know it really well. That's super important. You got to be able to do that. Kohut was able to do that. And I would encourage you all to, like I said, follow his example. But anyways, I'm digressing. The next thing that I want to do in this podcast lecture is uh, kind of take a look at, at self-psychology itself. And as I said, kind of compare it and contrast it to the stuff that came before it. And in doing that, kind of try to illustrate for you the way that self-psychology represents kind of an evolution, a gradual mutation of some of the foundational psychoanalytic ideas and practices that were created by Freud over time. So one of the first things that I'm going to call your attention to that makes self-psychology different from both classical psychoanalysis and ego psychology is something which is pretty obvious because it's right in the title, self-psychology. You know, Kohut learned ego psychology, he practiced ego psychology, and then he was, instead of just like writing an, a, his stuff that he called like a new version of ego psychology, he changed the name. He created this thing that he called self-psychology. He did not stick with the term ego. He used the word self. And that was a very deliberate choice on Kohut's part. He did not want to use the word ego. He wanted to use the word self. Why might that be? Well, the term ego is Latin for I, uh, as in capital letter I. Let me use that in a sentence. I am the sort of person who values social justice. Or I like the Red Sox better than I like the Yankees. That I in those sentences, if you were saying those sentences in Latin, you would say ego. And that's what ego psychology looked at. It looked at this thing, this I, the I that likes the Red Sox better than the Yankees, the I that values social justice. And the the ego, the I, that could also be another way of thinking of what, what I called in a previous podcast lecture, our identity. The consistent way that we attempt to present ourselves to the external world so that other people and other systems in that external world are able to identify us and that they identify us in a way which is generally positive. That's what ego psychology focused on, was helping people create a more consistent version of this identity, a more uh, socially adaptable kind of identity that could fit into society in easier ways. That's, that's one of the things that ego psychology tried to do. Did other things too, but that was one of its main projects. So for Kohut, he, he studied that, and he didn't see a problem with it necessarily, but he thought that the concept of the ego was maybe not expansive enough. And so he decided he wanted to use this other idea, which he called the self. And, and I would say that for Kohut, the self is a bigger and kind of like much more flexible concept than ego or identity. Uh, and, and maybe this is because he was doing this in the United States. And in the United States, there was this idea of self that gets thrown into a lot of other concepts that people throw around pretty regularly. I'll give you some examples here. In the United States, we talk about developing things like self-respect and self-esteem. Uh, from time to time, people will talk about achieving something called self-actualization. And Kohut heard all those sorts of things, and he thought that the self was kind of a much more bigger maybe a more foundational way of thinking about people than focusing on, on their ego. 
if you'll recall from my lecture on ego psychology, the ego psychologist look at, looked at the ego kind of like an air traffic controller, sort of like this machine that would balance all of these different kinds of things that were coming at it. It had the demands of the id, the criticisms of the super ego, all of the things that were just happening in our lives. And it was constantly key. And all those things were like planes in the air. And the ego was managing all those planes and bringing some in for a landing and sending some up into the air, so on and so forth. And it needed psychological energy to do this. But the ego psychologists really... It's fair to say, I think, that ego psychologists kind of saw the ego as a machine and that that machine just needed the right kind of fuel, psychological energy to to work well, to function right, um, so on and so forth. And Kohut saw that and he's like, I don't necessarily disagree, but I think that there's something even deeper than the ego, something more foundational, something more kind of like essential to what a human being is than the ego. And he called that thing the self. So if one of the things that ego psychologists are doing is trying to create an ego, which is strong and flexible and overall less defensive, one of the things that Kohut was trying to do was to create a self, trying to help a person, a patient create a self and maintain a self that was more cohesive and more healthy, less fragmented. So in that way, you might say it's kind of similar to ego psychology. Their, their overall project can be described in a very similar way. But what they're aiming at is slightly different, very close together, but slightly different. Ego psychologists aim at creating a strong, flexible, capable, productive ego identity. And self-psychologists and Kohut, they aimed at the creation of a healthy and cohesive self. So let's, again, take a quick look at this and do another comparison to ego psychology. So in the previous podcast lecture on ego psychology, one of the things that I said is that the ego is this thing that gets a grip on ourself, right? And when the ego gets a grip on ourself, what, what happens is the ego is able to have us behave in ways that are largely going to help us stay out of trouble. Kohut saw that and he thought, okay, that's, that's fine to do that. But what he wanted to do is not focus on the ego that was gripping the self, but focus on the self itself <laughs> in a way, right? The, the thing that was being grasped. So Kohut believed that rather than trying to strengthen the ego, the thing that's, that's kind of like, um, gripping the steering wheel of the personality, it's better to focus on the personality itself, that that's, that's a really good thing to do. Make sure that the self that is being grasped is in really good shape. Make sure that it doesn't have any major deficits, any major flaws, any major cracks running through it. That's kind of what he was attempting to do with theory that he created. Now, Kohut sees the creation of a, what he calls a cohesive or a healthy self as a project that we start kind of like right away when we're born and we never actually finish it. It goes on throughout our entire life cycle. We don't do like create ourselves and then have it be done. We create ourselves and then we constantly recreate ourselves. We maintain ourselves, and that, that, that creation, recreation maintenance is kind of like a lifelong project that goes on for as long as we live. That's one of the things that Kohut believes. In addition to that, Kohut also believes that the creation and continued maintenance of a healthy, cohesive self is not something that any one person can do on their own. No one, no one, no one, not you, not me, not anybody we know can create their self and keep their self healthy and cohesive totally on their own. We all need other people 
to help us do that. Therefore, and this is one of the things that I think makes Kohut's theory rather attractive to people who are interested in social work, he sees the, the creation and maintenance of a cohesive and healthy self as something that is kind of like a, a, a two-way street. So one, it's if I am creating myself, if I'm maintaining myself, keeping it cohesive, keeping it healthy, I need other people to help me do that. So what I'm, what that means is I will rely on, if I'm stressed out, if I'm having a bad day, if I'm, if I have a lot of things going wrong, uh, one of the thing, and this is different than the ego psychologist, uh, what Kohut would do, would encourage people to do is to seek out other people who you can talk to about whatever your difficulties are, and they can help you with those difficulties. They're, basically, the idea here is that sometimes when our self starts to become fragmented, when it becomes less cohesive, one of the best things that we can do is seek out other people and have them help us kind of hold ourselves together. So that's kind of one thing. The other thing that Kohut talks about is that we all have a responsibility to one another to help each other hold ourselves together. So not only can I go to other people and ask them for help holding myself together, I also have a responsibility to help other people hold their selves together. That's one of the other kind of interesting bits about self-psychology that, like I said, people who are social workers generally find that to be extremely interesting and useful. Um, and I'll, I'll say this again, this is a process, the, the being helped by others and helping others maintain a cohesive and healthy self. That's something that we do constantly throughout all of our lives. Now, there might be different points in our lives where we need more help, and there might be times in our lives where we're giving more help, but these are two things that we have to constantly do. We never stop doing them for as long as we live. So if you understand that stuff, I think that you're probably in pretty decent shape to see kind of like how self-psychology fits in with ego psychology, how it's different from ego psychology. And what we're going to do now is play a little bit of transition music. Then when I come back, I'm going to talk about what I think of as the main most important concepts within the theory of self-psychology. Okay, so there are eight different concepts that I believe are really important to understand self-psychology. So what I'm going to do next is I'm going to list those eight concepts one by one. And then after I list them, I'm going to go through each of them and say more about them. I'm going to suss them out, give you more details about them. So here's the list. One, narcissism. Two, self-object needs. Three, self-objects. Four, self-object transferences. Five, empathy, six, compensatory structures, seven, transmuting internalization, and eight, optimal frustration. So eight concepts. Now, I'm not going to be able to, you know, say everything that I want to say about these. There's not enough time for that. So what I'm going to try to do here is kind of give you some information that if you combine it with the stuff that you read in the chapter that you were assigned for today, I think that together with this podcast lecture and that reading, you will be able to have a pretty good idea of what self-psychology is and what the important concepts within self-psychology are. Uh, but I suspect that even after I do this and even after you've done the reading, 
that you're still going to have some questions. And I will encourage you to please bring those questions with you when we meet as a class. It will be my pleasure to attempt to answer them. All right. So let's get into our first concept, narcissism. So earlier in this podcast lecture, I talked about how Kohut noticed that classical psychoanalysis and ego psychology worked really well for some people, but not for everybody. One of the groups of people who Kohut thought were not being helped by classical psychoanalysis or ego psychology were people who were being identified as narcissists. Now, when we hear the term narcissism today, if we encounter the term narcissistic in something like the DSM-5 or whatever, it's, it has a really negative connotation, right? It is seen as something which is pathological. And what I want to make really clear here at the outset is that uh, Kohut asked a really interesting question about narcissism. He, his question was, what is the difference between somebody being what we'd call pathologically narcissistic and somebody having self-confidence? What is the difference between somebody who is a narcissist in a bad way and somebody who, you know, has what we would think of as like moxie, you know, <laughs> this sort of like attitude of like, you know what, I'm going to try this stuff. You know what? I've never tried it before, but whatever. I'm not scared. I'll do it anyways. What is the difference between those sorts of people? And Kohut has this idea that to some extent, we are all narcissists. Every single human being alive is a narcissist. Now, some people are, have it worse and some people have it, have it not so bad, but to some extent, we're all narcissists. And this starts when we're children. All children are narcissists, if you think about it, right? Uh, I have young children and uh, a while ago, we were moving some furniture around in my house, uh, me and some other adults. And uh, we moved a couch, a big, heavy couch that has like a sleeper thing that you can pull out of it. So we moved this couch and my young kid saw this happen. And after we were done, he went over and he tried to lift up the couch. He's like two and a half years old. There's no way he's going to lift up this couch, right? But he's like, I'm, I saw them do it. So I'm going to do it too, right? It didn't occur to him. It, it doesn't seem that it occurred to him to think I probably can't do that. Uh, that might be seen as somewhat narcissistic. You know, my kid thinks I can do anything. Uh, we, I, in, in this example that I'm giving you, we saw this happening. We were like, uh, dude, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm going to move the couch. And we're like, we don't think you can do that. He's like, I'm gonna, right? <laughs> so even though people were like, eh, you know, and telling him like, do you want some help with that? You know, he was like, no, 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 I'm going to do it. Uh, he has this thing. He says, I'll do it my own self. And that's what he, he tried to do. Uh, so again, that, that could be seen as something which is narcissistic. Now, Kohut's idea is that children need to be narcissistic because when you're a kid, when you're a young kid, so many things that you encounter are things that you've never done before, things that you have no experience with. And doing things that you have no experience with is anxiety producing. One of the ways that you can sort of kind of outflank the anxiety is to, to be narcissistic, is what he would say. Um, let me try to tie this to adulthood. If you're right here, right now at this stage in your life, if you're about to go do something that you've never done before, my guess is that it will make you a little bit anxious. And Kohut said there's this thing called healthy narcissism. And healthy narcissism is maybe what we might call self-confidence today. It's this idea that you're going to, in a sense, act as if you can do this thing and it's not a problem, even if it's making you feel anxious and scared or something like that. That's what he said. 
Now, there are some people who take this way too far. They, they don't have healthy narcissism. They have an unhealthy amount of narcissism. And those are the kinds of people that probably, you know, get labeled with uh, uh, some kind of thing like narcissistic personality disorder. Now, these sorts of folks, they tend to present as I'm so great. I'm so confident. I don't need anybody. I'm, I'm smarter than everybody. I don't, I don't need to go to school. I don't need to read that book. I, I already know that, or I can just figure it out by watching videos on the internet, something like that. Right. Kohut's, I think, uh, view of narcissism was to see it differently than the way that most people around him saw it. When most people around him encountered somebody who was a narcissist, they didn't like that person. And they thought that that person was sick and that they, they um, needed to be kind of like taken down a peg or two. And Kohut thought that was not a good way to deal with narcissists. Instead, he thought when people present as pathologically narcissistic, what you're seeing in their presentation that they're so great is actually uh, a feeling of being very inferior, of being very deficient, of being not good enough. And that, that those feelings, the feelings of being... I'm not good enough, I'm deficient, I'm not smart, I'm not attractive, etc. That those those ideas had become repressed, they had been put into the unconscious, and that one of the ways that the person was trying to keep them repressed, keep them in the unconscious, was by acting as if they were the opposite of those things. And that's what we're seeing with narcissism. But the key idea here is that if you're dealing with somebody who's narcissistic, Rather than buying into the story that they tell you and themselves about themselves, that story being, I'm so great, you should see the unconscious story, which is, I'm not great at all. I'm rubbish. And use that as your starting point when you treat them. I hope that that makes sense as I say it. So that's kind of Kohut's, some of Kohut's views on narcissism. There's more, but that's the stuff that I'm going to talk about for now. Um, so moving on from narcissism. Kohat has this other concept that he talks about. And I've broken this concept down into kind of like three sub-concepts here. Self-object needs, self-objects, and self-object transferences. I'm going to start off with self-object needs. So Kohat identified three things that all people need. Uh, the things that he identified that everybody, regardless of their particulars need, is people need ideals. Another way that we could say this is that people need role models, people who they can look up to and say, that person over there, the kind of person they are, the kind of life they have, that's the kind of person that I want to be. That's the kind of life that I want to have. I'm going to model myself after them and try to kind of become my own version of what they are. Uh, that's what Kohat said. We all need it. Now, for, for a lot of people, that's their parents, but not everybody has that. Sometimes the ideals can come from other places. They can even come from uh, famous individuals or fictional characters, some people have argued. But everybody, to some extent, needs ideals in their life. The second need that we have is the need for grandiosity. Uh, grandiosity could be described as a belief that you will be able to do stuff or that if you can't do it, that eventually you'll be able to figure out how to do it. If you have that, then you have enough grandiosity. Uh, this is also perhaps another way of speaking about what Kohut might call healthy narcissism. That, that sense of self-confidence, that 
you can do things. And even if you don't know how to do things now, you can probably figure out how to do them given enough time. So that's the, the other need that we have. And the last need that we have is the need for companionship or friendship. You, know, you might call it to have people around us who we think and feel and believe really understand us, really get us, who we can talk to about our lives and our experiences and really enjoy that and listen to them talk about their lives, listen to them talk about their experiences and, and feel like this person or these people, they're my person, they're my people. We, we all need that. We all need to feel that sense of kind of like social belonging. So once again, three needs, ideals, grandiosity, friendship. Kohut thought that those needs are, are things that if we don't get them met, we have problems. Not getting those needs met creates um, flaws or, or deficits or cracks in this thing that he called the self, the foundational thing of who and what we are. If we have enough ideals, if we have enough grandiosity, if we have enough friendship in our lives, then we're going to have a much more cohesive, a much more solid, a much stronger self. If we're lacking in any one or all of those areas, we're going to have a much weaker, fragmented, fragile, broken up kind of self. And Kohut's version of therapy has been described a lot of different ways. One way it was described to me early on in my own career, and I kind of liked this, was Kohut kind of approached therapy by asking two questions. Question number one, what is it that my patient needed at some earlier part of their life, but they didn't get enough of it? Was that ideals? Was that grandiosity? Was that friendship? That's the first question. And the second question is, what can I do about that? And that's what kind of guided the therapy. And if you're somebody who's going to do a self-psychological version of therapy, that's probably what will guide you as well. All right, so those are the self-object needs. Now let's move into just self-objects. What are those? So self-objects are the things that meet our self-object needs. I, I thought it made more sense to start with the needs and then move to the things that meet those needs. Now, self-object self is an interesting term. It's something which is both an object, i.e. something that is not a part of us, but it's a self-object. It's something that is integrated into this thing that is called ourself, this foundational thing of who and what we are. Um, so here's how I currently understand self-objects. Now, my understanding of this concept has changed over time. It might change again, but this is how I understand it right now. There are some people in our lives, there are some relationships in our lives that are absolutely essential to who and what we are. What I mean by that is if we didn't have this relationship, if we didn't have this person in our life, we would actually end up being a rather different person, right? So if you're a parent, your kid being in your life, that kid being your kid makes you who you, who you are. It makes you what you are. It makes you a parent. If you didn't have that kid, you wouldn't be the same kind of parent. You wouldn't be the same kind of person. If you're somebody who's been in a long-term committed romantic relationship, your romantic partner is somebody who makes you what you are. You're that person's partner. They're your partner. That, that is a fundamental part of who and what you are in the world. If you didn't have that person, if they broke up with you or they died or something like that, that would be something that would change who and what you are. Uh, it, your own parents, right? All of us have parents. It, and now it, you are your parents' child. You're their son or their daughter or whatever. Um, having them in your life having them parent you the way that they did, that made you who and what you are. So our parents, our children, our long-term partners, our closest friends, 
those are things that we could say are self-objects. They make us who and what we are. Now, you can kind of stretch this concept a bit and say that there are other things like our career, perhaps, if we spend a lot of time kind of developing along one particular career path, path that our career, our job, that might be a self-object, something that makes us who and what we are as well. Um, if we spend a lot of time uh, kind of like if we belong to a church, if we uh, belong to a school, uh, being a student at that school, being uh, an alumni of that school, being a member of this church or congregation, or those might be things also that could function as self-objects that make us who and what we are. Now, the other thing that's important to understand about self-objects is that self-objects are things that, in addition to being so important to who and what we are, they're things that meet our needs, our needs for ideals, grandiosity, and friendship. We get those needs met through our relationships to our self-objects, who and whatever those are. The last part of this is what's called self-object transferences. So as I mentioned earlier, Kohut thought that we had these three needs, idealization, grandiosity, and friendship. And he thought that sometimes people had a deficit in one, two, or three of those areas. And when he was working with people, he tried to figure out where their biggest deficit was, right? Like, so somebody might have a deficit in the area of, of ideals and grandiosity, but there'd be one that's probably a bigger deficit. And one of the, the first things that you try to do when you're practicing as a self-psychological kind of person is try to identify where the greatest self-object deficit is because that's what you're going to focus your interventions on. So the way that you do that is you look for different types of transferences. Now, the Kohut kind of articulated these, these things somewhat specifically. I'm going to do my best to succinctly describe them. So let's start with ideals. Let's say that there's somebody who did not have a lot of people in their life that they could look to and idealize and say, that's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of life I want to have. Kohut said if somebody had a deficit in that area, it would show up in what he called merging transference with to the therapist. What that looks like is the patient putting the therapist up on a pedestal. The patient saying things to the therapist like, you're the best therapist I've ever had. You're so smart. You should write a book. These sorts of things, right? They're, they're very complimentary. They're telling the therapist, you're wonderful. You are the best. And Kohut thought that they were doing that because the patient needed the therapist to be this kind of like best person, this kind of example that they could model themselves off of. So let's move on from that and say somebody has a deficit in the area of grandiosity. If somebody has a deficit in the area of grandiosity, what they do is they, instead of propping the therapist up, they prop themselves up, right, in different ways. They, they're like, I don't know if you know, but I'm kind of like a big deal. Um, I'm really smart. You know, I don't really need to be here. You know, I'm just doing this because, you know, my teacher made me or whatever, but I don't, I don't need this. This is, this is like, I'm, I'm good. I'm fine. That's one way that it showed up. Uh, however, there was also, and this is sometimes a confusing thing for people, there's another way that it shows up. Sometimes mirroring transference also shows up in people putting themselves down. Uh, some people say like, I'm rubbish, I suck, I'm no good, those sorts of things. So how, how are these both the same thing, people usually ask me. Well, in both instances, when the person is either saying like, I'm so great, or the person is saying, I'm so rubbish, what they're looking for is for the therapist to tell them that they're great. Uh, the, the person who's saying I'm great wants the therapist to be like, you know what? Yeah, you are great. And if the person's saying I'm rubbish, what they want is for the therapist to say like, no, that's not true. You're not rubbish. You're actually really great. 
That's what's going on there. And this is called mirroring transference. What the person's looking for is to have their grandiosity reflected back at them. And this is one of those things I suspect people will probably have questions about when we meet as a class. If you do, bring those questions. I'll try to answer them. Um, which brings me to the last need. Say somebody just doesn't have a lot of companionship, doesn't have a lot of friendship in their life. This shows up in what Kohut called twinship transference. And in twinship transference, it, it's a little, it's kind of like merging transference, but a little bit different. In merging transference, the patient puts the therapist up on a pedestal, idealizes them. And in twinship transference, they don't put the therapist up on a pedestal. Instead, they see the therapist as like a peer, as an equal, as somebody who is similar to them, i.e. someone who they could be friends with. And they say stuff like, you know what, you and me, I think we're the same. I saw this movie recently. I think you would really like it because I really liked it. Um, they, they start talking to their therapist more like a buddy and, and less like a, a person who they think is so awesome who can really help them out. That's how twinship transference kind of works. So Kohut would look for these different transferences. Now, chances are you'll probably see, to some extent, if you work with somebody for a long time, you'll see all of them. But there'd be one that would show up more often or would be louder, I guess, than the other two. And that would be where you would focus your energy is on whichever twin, whichever transference shows up the most. Uh, which brings me to the next point, empathy. Kohut thought that one of the best things you could do for your patients was empathize with them. And this is one of the things that led to his change in technique. He stopped using a couch and he started using chairs. He would face people. He would talk to them. He would empathize with them. He would uh, try to put himself in their shoes and understand who they were and what they were going through. This was the thing that became one of the driving forces of his therapy. One of the things that I think is interesting, maybe you won't think it's interesting, but I think it's interesting, is that when I talk about this, a lot of times people say it sounds very similar to Carl Rogers and client-centered or person-centered therapy. And it is very similar to that. Actually, Kohut and Rogers were both living and working at kind of the same time in kind of the same spot, but they never referred to each other, even though they both created empathy-driven therapies, which I think is kind of curious. I wonder if they ever talked to each other. I don't know if they did or if they didn't, but I'm, I'm very curious if they did. I would imagine that they did, but maybe they didn't. I don't know. It, it's a weird kind of uh, unsolved mystery in my own knowledge of uh, the history of mental health. But anyways, I'm digressing again. Let's bounce back to this. Uh, from empathy, what we have here is we have these things called the compensatory structures. So I mentioned that people have deficits in either ideals, grandiosity, or friendship. Kohut thought, that let's say that somebody lacked ideals. They didn't have a lot of role models in their life. One of the things they might do to compensate for that, uh, that deficit is really play up some other things. So they might be very social and create lots of friendships with people, or they might... Um, do things that nurture their grandiosity. They might become really good at a sport or become a talented musician or something like that. So the idea of compensatory structures is if we lack something in one area, we try to make up for it by having a surplus in another area. So again, hopefully that makes sense. If it doesn't, ask questions in class. Last two concepts I'm going to talk about here, transmuting internalization and optimal frustration. So transmuting internalization is an interesting idea here that, that Kohut comes up with. And the idea is that we are born knowing very few things and that we have to learn a lot of stuff. And all of the stuff that we learn comes from outside of us and eventually works its way in. So the idea of something 
being outside of us and working its way in, that's that's the process of transmuting internalization. So right, imagine a kid who doesn't know how to tie their shoes. If you know how to tie a shoe, you you teach the kid how to do that. And eventually what happens is over time, the kid watches you do it and you you help them learn the steps. And over time, they transmute and internalize the process of being able to tie their shoe. And then when they have successfully transmuted and internalized it, they can now tie their shoe on their own without your help. That's transmuting internalization. I think that your reading does a really bad job of describing that. So that's my attempt to describe it very simply. Uh, now, here's the thing. Along with all forms of transmuting internalization, there's this thing called, called optimal frustration. Kohut thought that one of the things that, that Americans were not particularly good at was dealing with frustration. He saw that Americans, whenever people were getting frustrated, they would try to get rid of the frustration maybe a little bit too quickly. And one of the things that he advocated for was let people be frustrated. Don't let them get so frustrated that they're actually having a meltdown. That's bad. But when, when somebody, especially children, become frustrated, what he didn't want people to do is jump in and help them too soon. Instead, Kohat thought that if you let people get frustrated, that frustration is actually a motivator. It, it helps you want to become unfrustrated. And so one of the things that you do when somebody expresses frustration is that you just sort of encourage them to keep trying, but you don't actually help them out. He thought there was this like window of frustration that was good, uh, optimal, where a person was frustrated enough to try new things, but not so frustrated that they were having a meltdown. And he wanted, he thought that the more time we spent in that window, another way that we might say this in the kind of contemporary vernacular is outside of our comfort zone. The more time that we spent outside of our comfort zone, the more time that we spent optimally frustrated, the the better we got at transmuting internalization, the the and the more um, things we tried, the more successful we might become. And so he thought that that was generally a pretty good thing. So that's my my breakdown of the eight main areas of self psychology. So what I'm going to do next here is play a, just a slight bit of transition music. I'm going to come back. I'm going to try to debunk a myth really quickly using self-psychology. And then I'm going to ask you to think about something before we meet as a class. Here's the music. So here we are. We're back. I'm going to try to do this section really fast because this podcast lecture has been a little bit longer than I thought it would be. So here's the thing that I'm willing to bet that all of you have heard. And I'm going to say that it's it's a myth. It's something that's not true. And that myth is this. No one will love you until after you have loved yourself. No one will love you until after you're, you figure out how to love yourself. I think that this is something that we hear a lot. Another version of it would be no one will respect you until after you develop a decent amount of self-respect. Now, self-psychology would say that those two things are wrong, that they are myths, that they are things that people like to believe are true, but they're not. People like to believe they're true because it's like, okay, if all I need to do is learn how to respect myself, if all I need to do is learn how to love myself, if I can do that, then everybody else will just kind of follow my example and they'll love me and respect me. That's a nice story self-psychology says, but it's wrong because as I said in the previous section of this podcast, we 
are not born knowing how to love ourselves. We're not born knowing how to respect ourselves. We're not born knowing how to tie our shoes. We're not born knowing how to speak a language. All of these things are things that we need to be taught by people who are outside of us. And this is what Kohut was referring to when he talked about the development and the maintenance of a cohesive self being a lifelong project, which is contingent upon us being helped by others and contingent upon us helping others. Self-psychology would suggest that loving ourselves, respecting ourselves, is a skill. And it's a skill that we need to experience from somebody else first. We need to have somebody in our life who loves us. Because having that person in our life who loves us, that shows us how to love ourselves because this other person loves us. We need that other person to be an example of how to love us. And then we can emulate that ourselves. Same thing with respect. We need somebody in our life, hopefully initially our parents and our family members who will love and respect us because if we don't have that, we don't actually learn how to love and respect ourselves. That's what Kohut and self-psychologists would say. Now, what happens when somebody does not have that example, when somebody does not have other people, other self-objects around them who love and respect them, they don't learn how to do that. And this creates a very weak kind of self, a very non-cohesive, fragmented self. And one of the things that happens when people have that is they might develop narcissism as a compensatory structure to cover over all these, this weakness that they have. And one of the ways that you can understand that is by empathically connecting with somebody, going like, why would somebody present this way? Well, they present this way because their self is actually weak and fragmented, not because it's strong. And then you can try to understand what's going on with them, look for transferences, identify transferences, and therefore identify deficits, and then try to do something about those deficits in the therapeutic work that you're doing. And so hopefully that makes sense to you again. And that is going to almost conclude our podcast lecture for today. So here's my last thing, my call to action for you. Uh, This week you covered ego psychology and self-psychology. And my guess is that you're probably going to find one of these two systems of thought a little bit uh, more to your liking than the other. Some of you might like ego psychology more. Some of you might like self-psychology more. So all I want you to do before we meet together as a class is identify which one of these is the one that you like the best. And when you have that figured out, just be prepared to say why it is that you like the one you like. That's it. There's no wrong answer to this. There's not one which is, I think, inherently better or worse than the other. This is truly just a matter of preference, you know? So just be able to say, this is my preference and this is why. If you can do that, you'll be in good shape. I will see you in class. Bring your questions, answers, comments, criticisms, and concerns. And until we meet as a class, please make some glorious mistakes. <laughs>